Hi everyone, I'm Madeline Park, stylist and vintage fashion hound. I believe everything has a story, whether it be clothes or the people that wear them. As we step out of lockdown and isolation and cast the athleisure wear aside, we come into a moment in fashion that celebrates colour and joy. It's time to express ourselves. It's time to be seen. So this is Style Stories Season 7, a series which continues to share stories of creative people with a strong sense of style, but with a celebration of colourful and camp styles that ask bigger questions of our Australian identity. And if expressing ourselves and being seen is important, I've gotten a whole lot more visual and released a mini documentary on YouTube and Instagram that helps answer these style questions and tell the story of the colours of camp in Australia. Today, I'm chatting with self-proclaimed creative slashy Maggie Zhu, who credits the jobs of writer, producer, podcaster and influencer to her multi-hyphenated portfolio career. Despite being an influential Gen Z at the tender age of 22, Maggie's voice strikes a different chord as she applies an honest, considerate tone to all she does, including her clothes. While Maggie may still be at the beginnings of discovering her style, the start of her story has you hooked and leaves you wanting for more. I hope you can sit back, relax, and enjoy listening to Maggie's story. Maggie, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I've really been wanting to have a chat to you uh, because you are a Gen Z writer and content producer who I perceive as having a very ethical stance on the things that are important to you. Um, And one of those things is your sense of uh, racial expression and um, identity and how you've felt perceived or or your experience of that. I know you've done quite a bit of writing around that. What um, I'd like to start off with is your understanding of that. I know you've said You've, you've described yourself as a Chinese gangly girl um, and someone that almost sat between two worlds. So you, you've, you've said in your words that, that you felt that you were too Chinese, not Chinese enough, too Australian, not Australian enough. So can you unpack that for me a little bit and just start off giving me a feeling and a, and a picture of what that looked like for you growing up in Australia? Of course. First off, thank you very much for having me on today. I'm very excited to get into all of this with you. Um, Unpacking my childhood. (laughs) Um, So I am still incredibly young. I am 22 years old. So I feel like I am continually learning and working through this. And I do think, you know, growing up as a Chinese woman and girl in Australia came with some surprises and a lot of up and downs, I would say. It's so interesting looking at back um, with hindsight now because I'm like, there were some tricky moments and like a lot of other BIPOC people, I think everyone has stories of um, racist encounters or microaggressions or just people not treating you the same. There's definitely been a lot of that, but I also think um, where I am from in Melbourne, I am a light-skinned Asian woman. I've also actually had quite a lot of privilege when it comes to my race as well. 
well. And I have also been lucky enough to find community in my racial identity as well. Um, But I think all up, I think what you just said before about me occasionally feeling too Chinese to be Australian or too Australian to be Chinese definitely still resonates. I feel like I definitely sit in the middle somewhere of not having a clear identity sometimes, you know, the typical where are you from question. I immediately want to answer Australia because this is where I was born, this is where I was raised, and this is the culture I do resonate with. But for a lot of people, the answer doesn't suffice. They look at me and they're like, well, you're not Australian. So yeah, (laughs) a mixed bag there. Yeah, so tell me about the the community that you do belong to and those important hallmarks for you. Um, Mm, For sure. So I attended Chinese school for so many years, which is held on Saturday mornings, so not the most fun for a teenager. But what I did find there are other ABCs, which are Australian-born Chinese people. Um, And it was quite interesting because a lot of us had that similar experience of, you know, growing up in a Chinese family, but also growing up in Western schools and Western settings. And it was kind of nice to be able to relate to my fellow peers there. So um, there are some certain quirks about living in a Chinese household, potentially like, you know, we don't wear shoes around the house or our mums will make these like smelly soups don't let her hear me say that um but as well as just some typical Aussie kids growing up you know like the Saturday morning cartoons we might watch or just whatever other kids really do as well it's not always focused entirely on race too a hundred percent so um what what are the those kind of uh, bits of um how would you define being Australian then? Like in terms of your specific experience, what what does that look like for you or did that look like for you growing up? Hmm, being Australian, I find this quite difficult it's, to sit with, right? It's a big question, right, because it's not the same for everyone. But your Absolutely. experience is a particular Australian experience. Exactly. And of course, we can't really talk about it without like acknowledging the colonialist roots of this country and, and how that really mars what it means to be Australian. But your question is, I guess, about my personal experience. So I will focus on that. And for me, it's an interesting one. It's hard because I want to be able to be able to answer this so easily, but just the fact that I have been questioned so many times about my Australian identity, both here and overseas, that it makes me feel like a fraud. You know, even in America, people will be like, oh, you don't sound Australian, like your accent it like barely sounds Australian. So even, even in like really small instances like that, it does kind of change my perception of what it means to be Australian. But I guess for me, I just, I, I definitely resonate with being a Melbourneian here in Melbourne. I think we have a very cool hip culture of coffee, art and fashion. And I really resonate with that. We've got like very strong brunch culture as well. So in those small cultural senses, I feel like I do fit in there. Um, but yeah, sorry, struggled with that question here. Yeah, no, that's okay. I, I know it's a very big question, but I guess for me, when I you know, I've, I'm Greek Australian. I'm third generation mm. Greek Australian. I have a specific experience, but mm. you know, um, that doesn't relate to your experience, but it does. And I think mm. the thing is, um, unless you know, we uh, have First Nations heritage, 
or in indigenous we don't mm. really we're all we've all come from somewhere else correct like and Completely. I think that that kind of generates a certain cultural kind of condition for how how we are um and I mean I think that's what that kind of uh ability to to mix various cultures makes our country unique and specific cities like Melbourne are particularly good at celebrating those various yeah. cultures I do want to add to that now that you've mentioned that I'm like how could I forget like I do think my experience of both my parents moving over from China to Australia I think in the 80s is really formative to my experience I always think about the fact like what if they didn't move here what if they moved to a different country I feel like a lot of my identity would be changed because I think my surroundings and growing up here in Australia has totally impacted who I am today and I do think that immigrant experience is so intrinsic to Australia and I can't believe it just like left my mind because so many (laughs) of us have been born overseas or speak other languages at home like that is very Australian I think so yes yeah and 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 tell me about your parents. What what are what are they like? Um, how did they um, find coming to Australia? Have they felt? Do they feel like this is home now for them? Yeah. Oh, very interesting. I feel like no one's ever asked about my parents before. Um, so they are from Guangzhou, which is the south of China. Um, and they have actually now been living in Australia longer than they were living in China, which is a weird situation. I was talking to my mom about it. And because, you know, we're asking like, do you miss going like do you miss home as in China like do you miss your family there and then she's talking she was telling me about how it's weird because again she's got the same situation that I was facing where you kind of feel like you're a part of two worlds potentially too much of one thing to be another thing right and and it's very interesting to see like that we both have different but similar experiences of feeling like outsiders um they love it here. They de- they do. They would call this home more than China um, after talking with them. But of course, it comes with challenges. You know, English being a second language or third language, um, and of course, they face their own um, like adversities too. But yeah, happy to call Australia home. Sounds like a bad marketing <laughs> slogan. <laughs> right, yeah. um, so you you called your. Um your blog misfit Mm. was that the condition of feeling like you lived between two Mm. worlds you have done your research (laughs) this is a very old blog of mine I don't think I posted it in it for a couple years now but yes um it's had a few name changes and the last iteration was the misfitted and I just thought I think I was spending a lot of time on tumblr so I thought it was very cool and quirky and it it is a play on feeling like a misfit sometimes feeling not extremely part especially of the fashion industry which is what I was predominantly kind of focus focusing on but I also thought it just might be cute that it's like the mist like the misfitted so when you have missed like when your clothes don't fit right as well um, don't know what I was thinking actually but yeah that's the story behind that <laughs> so going back to your mum and dad then you obviously are very creative and you've, you've had lots of kind of you know, what do you call yourself? I know it's, I, I feel, I can feel my age when I'm saying this. Is it a creative slashy? Is that right? Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. no, you're in with the lingo. That, that's, <laughs> I love that. Um, but 
Were, was that something celebrated in your household, like were your parents creative? Did they imbue that in you? Yeah, I think the most typical expectation, especially of Asian families, and this definitely rings true in a lot of my friends, et cetera, is that kind of rhetoric of that very strict parent parent of having to go down very academic pathways, such as law and medicine. Like that's definitely the stereotype. I'm very thankful and very lucky that I was never forced into anything like that. My parents, of course, wanted me to succeed and do well. And I am a very ambitious person. And for instance, in school, I scored really well. So they weren't ever really worried. They didn't and still don't really understand what I do. You know, they're like, what is this Instagram thing? Like, what is what is this social media platform? Um, but it's really lovely to see that they do support me regardless. Um, and they can see that it gives me so much happiness and they can see that's where my talents lie as well. So it's not like they just were like, do whatever, like you'll be like, like we don't care. They, they could just see that my passions lie in this creative space. And even if they don't understand it that much, they do support it, which is nice. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, you, you just mentioned there that you, you are an ambitious person. Mm. And I was going to say that you just need to look at your LinkedIn profile to know ah. <laughs> how much a sense of achievement is um, critical to you. Um, where do you get that drive from? Myself. I mean, it's weird because I think a lot of Gen Z now are pushing back on this like very ambitious like girl boss culture where people just work themselves to the bone this hustle culture that has been so glorified right and we're starting to push back from that and I understand it can be hypocritical because I have like I've got a lot of experience but I'm still trying to balance that like work life um, balance and it's quite a struggle but to go to your question where do I get this ambition from I honestly just love doing things to the best of my ability. And I know this sounds like a bad work, like job interview line, but it's honestly like, why am I doing it if I'm not going to put my all into it? Like, what can I achieve? Like, what can I create? I feel like that kind of unknown is really motivating. Like, that's so beautiful. Like we have the power to make something great or to like write something incredible or whatever it might be. I just think like that's, that's so like, aren't we lucky to do that? So I think that's where it comes from. Right. And so you so you obviously appreciate where you sit and and you you can recognize your privilege and take advantage of that which is fantastic. Um but you know you you've said quite openly go publishing or sorry journalism wasn't necessarily um an obvious path for you in many ways. Um partly because you couldn't see yourself in um, Australian media growing up and partly because journalism was ostensibly a dying kind of career. How, for somebody that is ambitious and that, you know, does, like I guess you have perfectionistic tendencies, if you're going to do something, you can do it well. How do you How do you go about deciding to pursue a career in something that, by all indications, you 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 got signs that you weren't you were locked out of it, or that it wasn't a great great future choice for you. Completely, and my honest answer is, I think I just fell into it. I definitely 
didn't plan this of course it was always at the back of my mind like this dream job or dream career path of mine and I think this sounds so ridiculous but maybe last year when I was kind of in the throes of freelancing and writing for different publications while I was doing that I took a step back I was like oh hang on am I actually doing this writing thing like I didn't even realize I had gotten to where I was because I think as you mentioned before being a slashy um I also do a lot of things on the side whether that be like social media social media marketing a bit of copywriting etc that I was just like oh like I am actually making money off writing like this is pretty cool and it didn't even hit me because you're right like it never was a viable career option for me so it very much took me by surprise when I found myself doing it yeah did that feel uncomfortable for you not or does that feel uncomfortable not not having a linear path Mm. I mean to some regards I have had a bit of a linear pathway like I just finished uni this year and I did study a bachelor of media communication specializing in journalism as well as um, communication design so we kind of it made sense especially even in high school the subjects I was choosing and that I loved were like studio arts media and English again that's like super tied into what I'm doing today but I think it still did take me by surprise I think it's not abnormal for a lot of creatives to feel in some level or shape or form like imposter syndrome right you never feel like you fully belong all that you have earned it a lot of the time so I think that's normal though that that comes across in many of the conversations I have it's definitely not unique to my experience but yeah that I guess keeps me on my toes and makes me feel surprised still (laughs) still every day (laughs) um now we've, we've been talking about how you are an ambitious person um I know that you started your Instagram account very young. So you're only about 13 mm-hmm. uh, when you started pursuing this, which is ambitious in itself. Do you think you, you've obviously built a little bit of a brand for yourself both visually and content-wise because you have presented yourself in a certain way and with an alignment to fashion with a particular ethical voice, as I mentioned before, and so by building a brand over the last what, like nine years, mm-hmm. um, do you think that this is the future for the next generation? Like do you think it's necessary for the next generation mm-hmm. to have a very conscious self-identity um, in social media to help pursue their career paths? Mm, there's a few things I want to touch on there right so the first thing about um like is this the future of potentially creative industries or journalism it's very interesting because when I started about that 13 14 year old age which is so incredibly young um it was so different I look I looked up to and I still do look up to so many bloggers um in the industry and that was I think like the cream of the crop like that's who I wanted to be and already as we can see like blogs are almost non-existent and again the landscape has changed and again right now I think we're seeing a massive change people talk about Instagram fatigue and kind of like the dark like the death of Instagram that's coming um and people are moving to video platforms like TikTok so that's scary as well like in this short amount of time we keep just seeing change after change so who knows what it'll be like in five years 
And then the other thing where you mentioned about like, is it necessary to have like a social presence? It's really interesting because one thing I do pride myself on is building myself up entirely. Like I didn't know anyone in the industry at all. And, you know, when it's an industry that relies on who you know, not what you know, it's really daunting, especially when people have like, oh, like my uncle's in this business or like my dad got me this job or whatever it is. I had none of that at all. And it's, and I had to do that from scratch. And honestly, like Instagram has helped me so much in that, in that regard. So that's one great thing about that. But then the other thing is I have a friend who's written and worked at a lot of Australia's major publications and she only got Instagram last year and it's on private and she doesn't really use it yet. She is so successful in her own right. So it's not entirely a necessity as well. Okay. Um, so you, so you're saying that you Instagram obviously helped you build connections and a network that you didn't necessarily naturally have. Um, but it, uh, it is also like, I, I imagine helped you build a sense, your own sense of fashion. Tell me where your, your kind of exploration of fashion started was it something that was important to you as a kid is it something that you saw in in your little world around you or how did you find it and what did it look like yeah definitely through the internet like the internet got me interested in fashion because pre that in my earlier teen years have terrible memories of again a Chinese Saturday school or wearing the same blue hoodie every single weekend for the entire year like oh I cringe when I think about that but it's kind of nice as well to to have not been focused on fashion when I was younger and I definitely became interested in it through social media particularly Tumblr which was more of a like a blog photo sharing website was very much in that cool indie space and that got me interested in um, op shopping actually and experimenting with my style there which was super super fun and just over time it's my fashion continually changes and it changes on what kind of media or social media I'm kind of digesting it's also where I learned about like the effects of fast fashion to begin with as well. Mm. So how, I mean, I guess it is an ever-evolving thing and you are you are someone that's young and that kind of commits to the understanding that you're learning and that you're not an expert on anything and you've still got like so many life experiences to enjoy. Um, but where would you say your, your style identity sits today? Oh, it's having an identity crisis. Um, I've got to tell you. <laughs> especially after these two years in lockdown I think it's like we've had time to rethink and I look at what I'm wearing like a couple years ago I'm just like oh like that doesn't feel like me I I'm it's changing a lot and it's it's in flux and I think that's a good thing as well you know one day I might be in a super super colorful kind of out there fit another day it's a very simple white tee and jeans and it just matches my mood I always try to wear what feels right and that changes on a day-to-day basis yeah yeah um so one of the things you know again we, we've talked about you kind of having quite a strong ethical and moral code mm-hmm. in the way that you kind of you you present your writing and one of the other um really vocal points I guess for you is around slow fashion and and if I hear what your kind of opinion on it is it it 
it, when you when you moved to a concept of slow fashion and moved away from fast fashion, it felt like quite an emotional experience for you that it was something that you felt rather than you intellectualized um so and you you've described slow fashion as the opposite of fast fashion in that it's intentional it's considered it's meaningful so what are the meaningful parts for you Maggie Mm. Yeah, I love the way that you worded that, that I emotionally connected to slow fashion rather than intellectualized it. Um, and I think that kind of underpins my whole experience with that you asked what is meaningful about it. And I think it's just like all encompassing. So from a personal level, when you wear garments that make you feel empowered, and make you feel good and that align with your values, you carry yourself differently in the world. Like I feel very confident to show my full entire self. And I think that is really powerful and that is really meaningful to me. Like I get I get to present myself in a way that feels authentic to me and that others may see me like that. Wow, like what a power is that? And the people who are actually making my garments, if I know that they are being treated fairly and that the environment is being cared for in the process, like that's a double whammy, like tick all the boxes, like how, how great does that feel? So yeah, that, that's what's really meaningful for me. Yeah. And, and so you, you, you now have your Instagram profile that has to balance that very kind of personal, meaningful experience to you plus kind of identify you as a writer for Refinery29, plus in, um, integrate brand collaborations. And, you know, your, your Instagram mm. profile is obviously something that is productive and um, commercial in mm. some senses to you. How do you, for someone that does value the meaning that you you attribute to your style, how do you balance all of those pieces out? Mm. I think the biggest thing is that creatives, let's call it on Instagram, are still running a business. And I think people kind of feel iffy about this because sometimes it's like, oh, but you're just being authentic and you're being you. But the other thing is like, there is like effort and there is talent and that there is value in what people put out online, no matter how frivolous or kind of shallow it also might seem to other people. So for me, it's drilling in that like, you know, like, no, what I post does have value. I feel kind of icky saying this right now, but I shouldn't like, it's, it's a job. It's a job in some regards, in a lot of regards. Um, And I think we kind of have to kind of normalize that because I do think it is quite linked to sexism because, you know, like people make fun of girls taking selfies or whatever it might be, but no, there is value in that. And I have to try to stay, stay on my ground. And then talking about the balance of the commercial and the personal, it's quite weird because I've have been on, online for so long that um, I, I feel very open just sharing almost like whatever on my story. Like I'll post really, let's say, unflattering selfies and just really random thoughts online. And I don't really overthink it. And I feel like that's that's the way to go about it. If I just take it like how I I just do it for fun right um it's a weird one though like I I, there's that side of it and yeah I'm still working with brands but to be honest working with these brands does feel quite right and authentic to what I'm doing as well we like share same values or it's products I love that feels quite normal yeah so you you look very chic and Mm. of the moment and trendy um 
what what are the parts I guess I'm trying to understand which parts are you you know we we know from this interview you you think about what you're doing and you're not you're not even if it is fun it is considered so what what does tell me what that style story is like what is that story for you what does your what do your clothes look like how would you describe them and what does that mean about who you are cool another big one so I do think fashion is so powerful um again it's one way to it's a vehicle of self-expression but it's also a vehicle for your values um and I try to not take these things lightly so honestly it's an interesting one because a lot of the time the outfits on my feet are like I've just thrown it together I'm out for dinner I'll get my boyfriend or my friend to be like oh quickly can you take a photo of me in front of this wall very embarrassing (laughs) for like a minute And then I'll just post that because it's, oh, this is what I'm wearing today. I think back in the day, I used to be more prescriptive and plan out shoots and put an outfit together just for Instagram and just for potentially my blog. And I do feel like the content that resonates with other people are like outfits in the wild. Just what are you actually wearing today? Because that's what other people can relate to as well. So, yeah. And so, so if I observe that from your Instagram account, I would say there is the, the joy in what you wear, mm-hmm. you know, there's the, and that comes through in colour and prints like you're wearing today. Mm-hmm. Um, is that, are you a happy person? Is that, is that what we're, what's yeah. being reflected here? <laughs> yes, I'm uh, very lucky. I do think I'm very much a happy-go-lucky kind of person. I think my family also attests to that but it's interesting because I do think there's this evolution of style where I used to be like all color all pattern like blur there you like there I am like see me now and I do think like what's kind of changing is like realizing that I can pair back and I really do appreciate more minimalistic styles or more um, tailored basics or just like a really good silhouette like that gets me in like right now like that's what's really appealing to me right now but that in itself can be loud, but in a quiet way or in a different way, I guess. Yeah. And you, you wrote an article recently as well about the kind of you, you're attracted to masculine mm. kind of silhouettes and, and masculine pieces. And I know the article then goes into, you know, where does your sense of feminism kind of intercept mm. with that? But but just going back a step that sense of masculinity in what you wear I guess in terms of the shapes that you wear and even Mm. what you're wearing today is Mm. a kind of quite um gender neutral kind of shape um is that something that is what does that what does that reflect about about Mm. how you see yourself I think like the sweet spot for style for me is when that when I get this like beautiful intersection of both feminine and masculine styles together. For instance, this brand that really does that for me is called Project Bowman. They're this small Melbourne label and I just, oh, it just, I just feel so right when I wear something <laughs> that like that feels representative of me. It feels powerful to me. It feels quite elevated. It feels like I'm kind of speaking to the different facets of my personality Going into, you, you said that you kind of found vintage fashion and op shopping through your 
discovery of the internet and Tumblr, etc. Is that a something, is that a place, like our op shops, a place that uh, you source a lot of your clothes from today? Mm. I mean, pre-pandemic, definitely. I would say that I'm very lucky that I get gifted a lot of clothing, but if I'm ever to buy something, like 85% of the time it's from an op shop. This was, again, pre, pre-pandemic um, completely, and there's a lot of privilege there, especially when I was in uni. I have a lot of spare time on my hands, so I can spend hours trawling through racks, and um, I have size privilege as well, so I can literally shop in every single section of the op shop. Um and it was just so fun and I and I love it and I still love it, but I haven't been out there for a while. <laughs> <laughs> what do you seek out when you do go op shopping? Because obviously, as you said, you've got to trawl through a lot of stuff to find what the, the good bits. What do the good bits look like to you? Oh, I've made so many mistakes. I've bought so <laughs> many things that I didn't need to buy because it's so tempting. It's so interesting. You say like, what are the good bits now? I think it's always great when you know something that you're looking for. So for instance, I wanted this like corduroy jacket and I literally looked for like a couple of years. It took a couple of years. Right. And that was a great find when I finally got that. Um, but otherwise now I always think about like the actual material cuts is probably the most important thing to me. Like I know what kind of styles I like wearing um so that's like a consistent thing I look for as well as materials or potentially colors this sounds very vague but basically what I'm trying to say is how will it fit into my current wardrobe already like how can I how can I style it with existing pieces that's probably that looks different to everybody but like that's what I think about every time yeah and do you seek out the uniqueness that comes with vintage fashion bit of both like the thing is a lot of my op shop faux pas came from buying a lot of fast fashion at op shops and the quality is just not there right and um, every time you do find something that is vintage it, it it's so much sweeter so I think now especially getting back into it that's something I'm definitely going to be looking for now quality that's something I kind of look past um back in the back in the day but I think like yeah that's something for sure I'll be focusing on and for for gen gen z's um you know you're you've grown up we're all participating in a highly visual culture now but you guys particularly have not known much else you know you've had the internet since inception Mm -hmm. um so in terms of that highly visual culture, do you think um, and the rise of vintage popularity um, in forms like Depop or what have you, do you think that that's allowing your generation to find um, a stronger voice in that highly visual culture? Mm. It's a mix. I feel like there are two dominant narratives at play with Gen Z, right? It's Gen Z, the generation that's going to save the planet. We got Greta Thunberg. Like we love op shopping. We love Depop, right? There's that. (laughs) And then on the other hand, it's like, oh, you can see the stats of like faster than fast fashion brands sales soaring up year on year. Like you can find statistics to to back up both those different um, opposing storylines. I do think that's very interesting because it is a very visual, um, visual um, like culture that we're living in. But like fast fashion brands are really good at that too. Like they're super good at making like super fun prints and very colorful pieces that become so saturated online. So 
like I agree with your point that it's like you know it's we're all competing for visual for visual space online but the thing is well yeah vintage fashion is one way to get there but again I do think like the fast fashion brands are potentially dominating that space unfortunately you've described Gen Z as um an activist a generation of activists or an activist generation uh coupled with the visual culture that we've just been talking about do you think that your peers feel the need to have a louder voice Mm. I wish I knew the answer to this because again I very much exist in this echo chamber online I follow people that are similar to me or hold similar beliefs so yeah I could If I was answering on that alone, I see my peers, you know, educating themselves, educating themselves, speaking up about issues that are important to them and, you know, putting them out and like putting themselves out there in the world in such a fun and unique way, in a very bold and kind of brash, here I am kind of way, which is gorgeous. But then I look at my peers, some of my closest friends from high school, et cetera, and it's like oh I don't even have Instagram like oh I don't, like well, what's going on there even my little 20 year old sister she she's not really on the internet um and then there's yeah there's a lot of people that are very much you know just your standard normal human being <laughs> study a bit maybe go to work they don't really kind of partake in this like online culture or even just a wider society in general which sounds weird but I I just I don't know what the normal is here because I'm just so online all the time. So for those people that uh, do participate in a highly visual culture do you think that their sense of fashion is deliberately more performative? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like imagine if we didn't have Instagram, if we didn't have TikTok, like what would we be wearing? Would we be wearing like these very intricate, like cut out tops and all these like cool prints? I wonder because a lot of the time I'm guilty of it, right? Like I'm going to put on an outfit and I'm like, oh, I can't wait to post this on Instagram as opposed to being like, oh, I can't wait to wear this to an event or to see my friends. Right. And it's a weird headspin to put yourself through. And I'm just being completely honest here because I understand that feels wrong to say that you're dressing up for the internet. But you have to remember that the people looking at Instagram are real people too, right? These are just potential online friends or just online strangers who are also consuming your outfit, much as a stranger walking down the street looking at you is also consuming your outfit. Just because it's digital doesn't make it bad, Yeah, but I I do agree with the fact that now we've got all these micro trends and we've got such fast pace, like fashion things that come and go. And I think that is completely just fueled by the by the Internet. Like it wouldn't be this fast without it. So, yeah, it's made it very performative. And so I guess I want to try and understand because you you're you're very humble and you know you've, you've got a great way of just of being very honest and I, I that's I think what resonates in your work um but if is there something deeper to it do you think for for your peers the internet peers not your maybe your uni friends yeah. that don't participate but for your internet peers do you think that there's something like the 
that their sense of activism, their sense of performative fashion is a part of needing to have a very strong sense of identity because it is being advertised, it is being Mm. put through a screen. So it needs to be louder to communicate the message that they want to express. Mm. There's a bit to that. I think, look, I think we are young and regardless of being on the internet or not, we are all just experimenting with ourselves and that means our style too, right? We make some questionable choices and that is okay. But now the main difference is that sometimes, yes, it is being broadcast to thousands of people. <laughs> and I think that's that's fine. And I think definitely like other generations would have gone through a similar thing. But now it's just this heightened audience that we are performing to. And I think that potential like overperformative or like really pushing the boundaries with our choices is just a part of that. And who knows, like that can just pair back in the past in the next few years they could try that and feel like oh that is completely not me but it's just about trying it out I think um but it's very interesting as well because the more I guess out there outfits are the more engagement they typically get I look at a few of my friends with like almost half a million followers and you can see like they're very weird mirror selfies with outfits that most people wouldn't wear in public garner the most likes and the most interest sometimes it's diversive in the comment section divisive in the comment section but people love to see that and I think that's also kind of where the rise of digital fashion comes into play like you know you can you can buy digital outfits that have like fire coming like off them and that's fun but obviously it's not practical yeah. Um, so, Maggie, you're someone that's sitting in that experimental phase. You're happy to embrace it. And I think you you accept your youth and you accept um, that you still have an evolution to come. What do you hope reigns true about your strong ethics as your style mm. develops? I... I have this fear of people thinking that I am better than I am or that I know more than I am or that I'm up on my high and mighty horse because I talk about slow fashion, like big fear of mine, right? I'm so imperfect, especially in the sustainability realm. I got to take away coffee yesterday. You know what I mean? Like there's just so much to unpack there. So what I really just want to ring true is that Maggie's just being Maggie online (laughs) like I just that's that's it like literally as simple as that like oh like you're very much I sometimes get comments being like oh you're like so similar in person as you are online and I'm like yeah like that's good I don't want to be fake I don't want to be even aspirational I just want to be like oh I don't even want to say real and authentic because I understand that they're just bandied around a lot but I just don't want people to have pressure on themselves or like compare themselves to me and think they have to change and I think like authenticity or realness looks different to everybody and by embracing my own self I hope to inspire others to do the same with themselves yeah well what I can say is that what I see online is an adorable girl with a really Ah. cute style (laughs) and 
<laughs> what you present to me now is an adorable girl with Aww. a really cute attitude to life. And um, so I want to thank you for your time today, Maggie, and thank you for sharing your style story with me. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much again for having me. Growing up, Maggie may have straddled the worlds of her Chinese heritage and her Australian upbringing, but arguably it's the World Wide Web that has had the most profound effect on her style. From an early age, Maggie tapped into the virtual world of fashion as a channel for expressing herself, and from there, the internet has become her oyster. And while she may influence with the best of them, what sets Maggie's style apart is not only a cheerful balance of masculine and feminine and a homage to slow fashion and vintage alike, but an honesty, authenticity and intellect that makes her style and her story one to watch. <laughs>